0: Hey, it's Jen. Just a quick heads up that we'll be discussing mental health and that might be distressing for some listeners. So before we start, a quick reminder that the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week to anyone in emotional distress. You can reach it by dialing 988. Thanks for listening. I've been a paramedic for 20 years. I have depression, anxiety, and PTSD. About a year ago, I had to give up my therapy sessions because I couldn't afford the $40 per visit copay. I don't feel like I've been as well supported as I should have throughout some of this process. I think there's a lot more that employers can do uh, to help out people that are struggling, especially with recognition. We turn to healthcare workers during our greatest moments of need. But where do they turn when that burden becomes too heavy? A survey of 1,500 physicians conducted this summer shows their mental well being is suffering. One third felt they had no purpose, and more than half said they were burned out. We asked the healthcare professionals in our audience about their mental health, and here's a message from a physician's assistant at a public hospital in New York City. It's always been an issue. It's only gotten worse, I think, during
1: COVID. The culture in healthcare is to not talk about mental health issues. Even though we've increased how much we care about it for patients, we don't apply that same methodology to ourselves. It definitely feels as if it's discouraged to speak up and is seen as a sign of weakness. So it's really sort of a toxic culture
0: and I wish it was more supportive. Thanks for that message. After the break, we hear from doctors who have spoken out about mental health, and we also hear your stories. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Stay with us. We're discussing the mental well-being of healthcare workers. Our first guest is Dr. Justin Bullock. He's a practicing physician and research fellow at the University of Washington. Dr. Bullock, welcome to 1A.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
0: So you were diagnosed with bipolar disorder while you were in medical school. What do your symptoms look like in the context of your work as a doctor?
2: Yes, good question. Um, So I have bipolar um, two. Um, So there are two main types of bipolar. The first, um, both have episodes of depression. Um, Bipolar type one um, uh, has episodes where Someone will um, have periods of being very sped up. Um, they're called manias. Um, oftentimes, think quickly. Um, uh, sometimes, are impulsive. Um, uh, can can go to places where you ultimately get hospitalized for being very sped up. Bipolar two, on the other hand, um, is a little bit more challenging to diagnose often, and that's because these times of being sped up um, are less sort of intense compared to bipolar type one. And so many of my features of hypomania, of being a little bit sped up, are actually things that are viewed very favorably within medicine. So mm-hmm. that means I can sleep a little bit less, so I can sleep five or six hours and still feel pretty good. Um, and, you know, I sort of think more quickly, and more sort of goal-oriented, can do more work, take on more tasks, um, um, and kind of just have more energy generally. Um, and definitely with some... Um, a bit more, um, feeling a little bit more impulsive than I, than I normally do. Um, but I would say overall, there are actually features that I think medicine actually favors and kind of selects for.
0: You also struggled with depression, which became particularly bad in 2020, and you attempted suicide for the third time that year. What was happening in your life and in your work?
2: Um, and so my, um, so as you mentioned, my three suicide attempts were each about five years apart. And um, in 2020, um, I was a first year resident. Um, I had actually been diagnosed with bipolar disorder um, when I was a medical student um, and had been doing pretty stably for a while. But when I started residency, um, I really um, was impacted by the frequent day-night sort of Flipping, um, where I would work days for a few days, work nights for a few days, and go back and forth. And that's a very well-known trigger for bipolar disorder. Um, and basically, what happened was first I sort of sped up, um, and I was actually very productive. Um, I, I published some papers. I wrote a piece actually about um, um, about having bipolar disorder. Um, and then and then afterwards, I crashed. Um, and I would say for me, that's that's very common in my sort of trend of mood episodes. To after the speed up periods, which for me usually felt pretty good and are usually kind of have positive benefits then have very significant depressions.
0: We got this email from Sharon who says, I suffered from depression during my training and took one month off from residency. I applied for a license to practice in Texas and they would not grant me one without my granting them full access to all of my psychiatry and therapy notes. I opted not to pursue licensing there. This kind of thing definitely prevents us from seeking help. Dr. Bullock, what was your experience after, after, as you described it, after that crash? Um, how much did you feel you needed to disclose? How much did you feel you could you could keep to yourself?
2: Yeah. Um, so, the suicide attempt happened actually after a period where um, I had been very outspoken about having bipolar disorder. Um, I wrote this piece called "Suicide: Rewriting My Story." that was in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is one of, if not the kind of most prestigious medical journals. And I basically really wanted to um, put some transparency into my experience as a person living with bipolar disorder with suicidality and um, sort of challenge the notion um, that healthcare providers don't have mental illness because I think it's very clear that we do um, because we're humans just like everyone else. Um, And so sort of in that context, I was very out about my bipolar disorder with my institution. Um, and for that reason, I actually felt very free to, I told my, the, uh, my residency program that I was um, not doing well. Um, I had had a, I was sort of voluntary hospitalization earlier in the year. Um, and um, so I basically called, I knew, I knew I was not well. I called, I work for a few days and then had the suicide attempt, I attempted suicide. And um, I did an outpatient program for a month Um, was cleared to return to work by a therapist and psychiatrist. And I assumed that because I had never had any workplace issues at all, ever, um, that I would be allowed to come back to work because I had done the treatment that I needed, I was on the right meds, I was doing better. Um, And like the reader that you mentioned, I faced an unbelievable amount of stigma and, I believe, discrimination. Um, I was forced to do hair, blood, and urine drug tests. I've never had a substance use disorder um I had to release all of my medical records from every hospital and every psychiatrist I had ever seen. Um, they made me do a personality test, a multiple day psychiatric interview um, and this is with um, um, basically it, while this is happening, you know I am one month post suicide attempt you know facing all of these lawyers and institutional actors um, who had so much power over me and basically as it stands in the current Healthcare training system. Um, it's very hard to leave a program and then be accepted into another residency program, and because of that, you're often chained to your institution. Um, and so, basically, I felt that if I I didn't go through all of this to go back to the job that I would, you know, that I had, that I basically would not be able to practice medicine. I would never finish residency, never get a, a medical license, be able to practice independently. And so, for that reason, I felt extremely. Um, I feel like I really did not have any power. Um, And also, I felt that I had actually been extremely transparent. I told my program that I had bipolar disorder. I had formal accommodations. I was going to therapy, taking my meds. I disclosed that I was not doing well. I self withdrew from work. And I actually am the person who called 911 to get myself to the hospital. And so to me, I would argue that I showed good insight to protect patients and protect myself. And I still felt very deeply punished. Um, And... I believe that the only reason why I was, I'm I able to still exist in medicine today is because I was very fortunate to not have any sort of bad marks against me up to that point.
0: We're talking to Dr. Justin Bullock. He's a physician based in Seattle. And we want to mention that the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week to anyone in emotional distress. You can reach it by dialing 988. And let's hear another message from one of you. Amanda in Georgia says she's experienced, her experience in critical care and emergency nursing has had an impact on her.
1: I suffered severe depression with suicidal ideation in 2019 I also had a family member who died of suicide in that same year. I went to work two days after my family member died and found out I had my first patient who had attempted suicide. I had five patients that summer who attempted suicide while I was suffering depression. My employer offered employee assistance, but it only covered four or five visits a year, which wouldn't take care of my condition. Most days I just walked into work and sucked it up and prayed wouldn't be the day that I ended up checking myself in.
0: Thank you for that message. Dr. Balak, when you think about the working conditions and the culture that exists in medicine, how can it help or hinder attempts to heal from a serious mental health crisis?
2: We would I would think that because as healthcare providers we have often very easy access to the healthcare system, um, I would say that's not uniformly true, but I think on average we have better access than than many people um, across our country. Um, we would hope that we would um, sort of readily access the mental health resources. Um, and in particular in the healthcare training system, and I think this is true for people who are out of training and in practice, um, our institutions are so often um, unfavorable to individuals with mental illness that, one, people are just deathly terrified of, of seeking help, of when, when you apply for a medical license, being forced to disclose um, whether or not you've ever seen a provider ever taken medications, and then being at risk for being put on a probationary license. Um, I would say that that is strongly disincentivizing of people getting the help that they need. Um, and on top of that, um, one of the unique challenges of our field is that um, patients are always sick and need support and help, and often that's actually weaponized against providers from getting the help that they need, um, that, and, and I am of the belief that we must first care for ourselves before we are able to care for other people, um, and I just don't think that that's the way that the healthcare system is structured now.
0: Let's add another voice to the conversation. Joining us from Missouri is Dr. Jessie Gold. She's an assistant professor and the director of wellness, engagement, and outreach in the Department of Psychiatry at Washington University in St. Louis. Dr. Gold, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Well, a 2021 study showed more than 70% of healthcare workers in the U.S. have symptoms of anxiety and depression, 70%. What other mental health challenges are healthcare workers facing right now, Dr. Gold?
3: That's a good question. I think when you look at that number, it feels overwhelming. But I think what people need to realize is that physician or you know healthcare worker mental health was bad before COVID, and COVID came and compounded it. So it's not like our mental health was fantastic, and then we had this big stressor, and then things were bad. It was bad before. We had rates of depression higher than other populations. We had rates of um, prescription drug abuse higher than other populations. We struggle with anxiety. We struggle at burnout. We had all of that before. And then with COVID, we had all these unique stressors like the inability to actually help people because we didn't know what was going on, the actual risk to ourselves, the, um, you know, people being angry about various aspects of healthcare that contributed to the environment and more death that we couldn't really prevent. And I think this expectation that we could help everything. And all of that just made our previous mental health state much worse. And so I'm a psychiatrist who sees healthcare workers and actually also their spouses and college age kids. And I've really seen this affect not just the healthcare worker, but their families as well. And it is gonna be something that just as we were dealing with before, we're gonna deal with after with a pretty long mental health tale, but I think it'll probably be worse given how much COVID has impacted us.
0: Well Dr. Gold, I'm trying to understand what's at the root of this culture and and the inability to, to shift. I mean, we know policy often lags far behind what research and data tells us. And it seems like there's a long record here of the harm being done to healthcare workers, and yet there doesn't seem to be a significant cultural shift within the industry. What have you gleaned about why that's not happening?
3: It's a really hard question. I think that a lot of things contribute to what's going on with us and some is cultural and some is systemic. And the systemic factors are the ones that people don't want to change and the ones that need to change. So, you know, people having long work hours, people spending most of their day documenting where they don't get meaning and purpose, there not being any redundancy. So one of the issues in residency is if you're sick, the people that are covering for you are your fellow residents. So you have to then feel like you're burdening someone else because you chose to make a decision to not go to work, which was probably in the best interest of your patients. So even starting in residency, but continuing throughout our careers, there's this sort of like, everybody's depending on you, your needs come last feeling, and that's just encouraged by a system with zero redundancy to dis- to support you in actually taking that time or to get help. And then, you know, culturally... We have a lot of stigma towards mental health, some of which Dr. Bullock talked about, and I'm honored to be on this call with him because I very much admire everything that he talks about and has experienced and is willing to share. But, you know, for the most part, we don't talk about this stuff because we were told that we're not supposed to and that a physician or a nurse or anyone else in healthcare is supposed to basically be taking care of other people. And if we have to take care of ourselves, it sort of interrupts the care of other people. Doctor, can I,
0: can I get you yeah. to pause for one second? When you say we were told not to, was that explicit instruction or was it implicit?
3: That's a very good question. I think a lot of it falls under what we would call the hidden curriculum of medicine, which is that it's not something where they say in a classroom, this is what medicine is, but we observe it in other people and we are encouraged to that being what medicine is. So when we're on rotations as, as medical students, we see residents coming in sick. We see them, um, you know, being praised for not staying at home. We get feedback on our own uh, you know participation that basically tells us that these are the behaviors that we want to encourage and these are the behaviors that we don't and so we see it modeled we get it encouraged in subjective feedback and as a result sort of shape ourselves in that light despite a lot of people especially more recently being really emotionally aware going into medical school so I think you know people go into medicine because they want to help people but there's a big you know cultural shift in in all of the country and world honestly to talk more about mental health openly. And so we're talking about it, but then you see it modeled differently and you think, well, if I want to be a doctor, if I want to be whatever you define as professional, <laughs> I have to be this way. And that's the same in other professions too, in medicine, not just um, you know being a doctor, but that's at least been my experience and has been an experience of the patients that I see as well.
0: Paul emailed us, I'm a recently retired nurse. I worked in a state hospital, and fortunately for me, I didn't have to work with COVID patients. However, during the last three years, bad staffing shortages only continued to get, to get worse. This has put extra strain on everyone. I don't envy those who are still there. And Wayne tweeted us, I proudly work as a home health care I proudly work in home health care for adults with developmental and physical disabilities right through COVID. I've lost clients literally in front of me. And the agency's response was, if you need time off to grieve and process, you'll have to use vacation. No support at all. We heard there, Dr. Gold, from a nurse and a home health care worker. And how are other workers not just physicians, but other workers in this field struggling too. How does mental health vary between different types of healthcare professionals?
3: I appreciate you asking that question because I think as physicians, often we get the microphone and we don't get to amplify the stories of other healthcare workers. And some of that is because there's not enough data in other workers. So we know some about nursing. We know that nurses have higher rates of suicidal thoughts than the general population and more than doctors, at least in the most recent study. We know that nursing is having a significant staffing shortage and a lot of that is attributable to burnout, but we don't know a lot about the people who work in the hospital besides Besides doctors and nurses. So, we don't know a lot about the respiratory therapists who had to directly intubate people with COVID. We don't know a lot about the people cleaning the hospital who have been exposed to everything that they've been exposed to. We don't know about medical assistance. So, we don't have good data there. But what I can say from my experience is that access to care differs between those populations too. So, as a physician working for a medical institution, I have full benefits. That is not always the case for somebody who's working part-time. That's not the case for somebody who is maybe a, a lower-wage healthcare worker, and as a result, they don't have access to seeing someone like me as easily. They don't have the financial benefit of something like an employee access program. And so you get an, a compounding effect of not just the uh, you know systemic effects of not being able to take time off or not being able to schedule mental health care into your schedule, but not being able to afford it either and i think that's a really important thing to be talking
0: about. Dr. Bullock, i can't help but think of um some of the media representations of healthcare, you know, the tv shows set in hospitals. Do you think there's a way in which that contributes to the culture in medicine but also perhaps the the disconnect around the public's understanding of how our healthcare professionals may be struggling with mental health issues?
2: I absolutely do. Um, I am personally a fan of medical TV shows <laughs> still to this day, even now as a kidney doctor. Um, but the media often portrays physicians as these superhuman individuals who can work you know, through unbelievable um, emotional and physical challenge. And um, I would say that humans in general are able to do that for short periods of time, But when that becomes the norm, um, it basically leads to a maladaptive state of physiology of mental health. Um, And I would say one of the things that I've learned on my journey with bipolar disorder um, is I've had to accept my own humanity and my own limitations. Um, And um, while I fully and deeply... um, Place part of the blame of my um, sort of mental health struggles with the toxicities of the healthcare training system. I also have to own it as well. And I would say that you know I didn't feel empowered to advocate for myself to not do the night shifts that I knew were going to be harmful to me because I felt like I needed to. Tr- I needed to. I, I needed to finish training to become a doctor. Um, and you know retrospectively looking at it, I now understand that. The the best thing for myself and for my program and for my patients and for my peers is to exist in an environment where I feel safe coming forward and getting the support and help that I need. Um, but it it but but I I feel like we we being physicians being patients being society um, don't encourage that or haven't historically encouraged that.
0: We'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. Let's get back to our conversation with this message from a physician assistant in New York City.
1: I spoke to my supervisor about a year ago about concerns I had about my own mental health and the stress of the job and that I felt it was kind of getting to me. I, I felt a little more depressed and he was very receptive in that moment, but he responded essentially by tasking me with implementing mental health initiatives for our unit without any sort of guidance or support beyond a few initial emails. So all that
0: was accomplished
1: was that my stress level increased.
0: Thanks for that message. We also got this tweet from Gary who says doctors are human. Humans get diseases. Diseases are best handled if treated. And some of the diseases that afflict those of us in health care are mental health issues. The American Medical Association is working to persuade states to quit asking ridiculous questions about mental health. But sometimes it's difficult to overcome state medical board members' prejudices. This can include the public. Thank you for featuring this issue today. We should worry more about those not getting mental health care. Doctor Bullock, I'm I'm curious to hear from you in that voicemail we heard where here's a healthcare worker who reached out for help and was given the task of creating something that would support other people, which basically just added to her workload without providing any relief. How familiar is that story to you?
2: I think it is very familiar. I would let would say in my experience, um there are many people who are well intentioned but don't have the training or experti- expertise to um, help people when they're struggling with mental illness. And um, I think that um, obviously we're all existing in a world where therapists, psychiatrists, all sorts of mental health professionals are extremely, extremely taxed. The burden of mental illness is profound across the country. Um, and um, oftentimes, you know, I say this as a a gay, black, bipolar person, um, the minority tax is very real, Um, and the amount of energy that I and many, many, many other people have spent trying to um, educate these institutions, which are often very fundamentally racist, ableists, et cetera, um, is is quite immense. Um, And so, yeah, I would say I resonate very deeply with that comment.
0: I'm curious to hear from you, Dr. Balak, about an overnight shift you had when you were asked to approve anti-anxiety medications for a co-worker's patient, and you decided to visit his bedside, which isn't necessarily standard. What happened next?
2: So I got the page, and it was just a little bit unusual. It was a gentleman who was um, basically at the end of his life who had um, metastatic cancer. Um, and as I um, entered into his room, um, I had The nurse had told me previously that he was basically kept kind of yelling out and was asking for someone to hold his hand um, and was very anxious and was asking for a medication to help control the anxiety um, and As I walked into his room, I noticed that he was gasping for air, basically struggling to breathe because the cancer had um, spread to his lungs um, and in that moment, I recognized and sort of connected very deeply with this inability to breathe, because one of my suicide attempts basically resulted in me having a very similar sensation. And um, and that's just a very scary feeling. Um, and so I basically um, uh, sat down with him and just, like, held his hand. And this is a busy overnight where I tend to get tons and tons of pages. And somehow for, like, 40 minutes, I got no pages. And I just was sitting with this gentleman Um, and as, um, eventually I got a page and had to step away and I was pretty sure that he was going to kind of go back to yelling and sort of uh, the state that he was in before. Um, but he didn't, um, and he actually soon, within a few minutes after I left the room, he passed. Um, and that moment has always been an extremely meaningful, sort of very profound moment for me because, um, one, the reason why my coworker was sleeping was because at nights I get a little bit activated and I tend to, you know, I still feel safe to work, but I let I let other people sleep so that I can, um, you know, uh, because I need to have a very rigid, like, be awake at night schedule. Um, and um, and then I really just had this moment of connecting with this human about something very kind of primitive, which is this this sensation of breathing. And only because I had an attempt in the past where, where that was really threatened um, did I sort of connect in this way. Um, And it was one of those moments that even though this had actually nothing to do with bipolar disorder, it had everything to do with my experience of my bipolar disorder. Um, And and I believe that that was me providing care, very special care. And I don't believe I would have done that had I, if it was not, if, if I hadn't had that experience, I would have just written him the medication and then not thought about it again. But in that moment, he didn't need medication. He just needed a human to be with him. And this is the middle of COVID pandemic and like where people's families weren't there. Um, Yeah, and so I think we often frame mental illness discussion from a deficit model, where we think about all the harms and potential bad things that people with mental illnesses um, may bring. But we never talk about all the strengths and benefits and the ways that we actually heal through the pain and suffering that we've experienced. And to me, that's just a really nice example of one time that I feel that that happened.
0: Well, and Dr. Gold, part of what I'm hearing from Dr. Bullock is systemically, there's this expectation that Healthcare workers provide empathetic, um, thoughtful care to people, and yet there is a barrier to them bringing their whole selves to the work. So there's just an inherent conflict between who we're asking them to be in the workplace and how we allow them to show up. Am I hearing that correctly?
3: Yeah, that's a beautiful way of putting it. I think we expect people to be empathetic to a point, empathetic without themselves coming through or it even affecting them, right? We assume that you can somehow sit at someone's bedside for 45 minutes and then they die and we're okay with it. That that doesn't affect us. And it's impossible because as Justin mentioned, as it comes up often, we are human and it's impossible to do our jobs and not be human. And it makes us much better at our jobs to acknowledge that humanity and you know, when we struggle, ask for help to better deal with how that's affecting our humanity.
0: We got this email from one doctor who wants to stay anonymous. She says she's, she was fired after taking leave for depression. I've been transparent with my history. That has meant essentially feeling blacklisted. It would have been easier if I had broken my arm. I would have been given work accommodations and hopefully some sympathy. My psychiatrist has consistently discouraged my talking about it or submitting it to insurance, so I pay for it all out of pocket to keep it, quote-unquote, off the books. Now, many states require health care professionals to disclose mental health concerns, during their licensing and credentialing processes. Uh, Dr. Gold, why do you see that as problematic?
3: is incredibly problematic. It's improved over time. And really, according to Americans with Disabilities Act, they're really supposed to only ask about current impairment. But if they have broad questioning about historic treatment, if you don't know what happens, if you say yes. So if something says, "Are have you ever seen a mental health professional and you say yes, and they don't actually care about that answer unless you're impaired, then that's helpful to know. But we never know. So people end up feeling like no matter what, they're going to be punished. And our whole identity is really enmeshed with, being in healthcare. And the idea that you could spend time, money, identity, um, you know, lose friends, lose relationships, whatever you had to sacrifice in order to become a healthcare worker, the idea that that could be at risk because you asked for help is not something most people are ready to risk. And so most people wait until they're really, really sick or most people, you know, hide it until they can't anymore. And that's a problem.
0: We've spoken about some systemic issues that could change around reporting, um, mental health challenges, but Dr. Gold, what other changes would you like to see?
3: You know, we mentioned the idea that you don't notice that you're sick until you're very sick, and we don't talk about it until you're very sick. And some of that is we think that we can take care of ourselves because we're trained in it, and we think we can identify problems because we're trained in it. And we actually aren't very good at that, and identifying problems in ourselves. And part of that is because our culture has really normalized bad. So you can look to a person next to you, and they're also sad and not sleeping. So you think that's medicine, not something that you need help for. And so we need to get get comfortable talking about our struggles, it doesn't mean we have to talk about our mental health conditions. We need some people to do that, but we don't need everyone to do that. We need to openly on our teams talk about what was hard about work. After a code, we need to talk about how that felt instead of just the issues that led to the thing happening technically, right? We always talk about the technical part because it's safer, but we need to talk about the emotional stuff too. Systemically, we obviously need to be thinking about things like paperwork burden and how the insurance system has influenced medical care and there's a lot of things there but I think you know what we can do as individuals is talk about it more like this show is offering the opportunity to do but also just in our teams with our friends with our colleagues not we don't have to talk to everybody if you could just find one person you'd feel a lot less lonely
0: this March, President Biden signed into law the Dr. Lorna Breen Healthcare Provider Protection Act. Breen was a New York-based doctor who died by suicide in April 2020, and it uh, provides about $135 million for programs aimed at supporting the mental health and well-being of health care workers. Dr. Gold, you received a grant from the Dr. Lorna Breen Act. Briefly, what do you plan to do with the money?
3: Yeah. So one of the things that we've noticed in our hospital system, but is true kind of across the board is that there might be resources, but people don't know what they are or when or how to access them. And we're trying to make that easier, putting it all in one place, helping people screen and know what they actually need, and then putting a person behind it to support people if they just can't understand navigating it, because it is really confusing. And it's not like hospital systems haven't put some investment into this in the past, some people better than others, but there is some places, there are places with systems, you just have to ask for help when you need it.
0: That's Dr. Jessie Gold. She's an assistant professor and the director of wellness, engagement, and outreach in the Department of Psychiatry at Washington University at St. Louis. Also with us today, Dr. Justin Bullock. He's a physician and research fellow at the University of Washington. Dr. Bullock, Dr. Gold, thank you so much for speaking with us. I want to mention once again that the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, to anyone in emotional distress. You can reach it by dialing 988. Today's producers were Avery Kleinman and Jorgelina Manarea. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. This is 1A.